The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, Luke chapter 19, 1 through 10. Notice it's called the first Christmas carol. Those of you who are familiar with, is it Charles Dickens, wrote A Christmas Carol? That very uh, famous Christmas story that's come out in many different uh, forms over the years. And it was called uh, A Christmas Carol. And the theme is, you got Ebenezer Scrooge, and he hates Christmas, and he's a grouch, and he's mean, and he's just downright evil and stingy. Yeah, amen. And by the end of the story, he has, so, and so what happens, he has some dreams, and he has an experience, and at the end of the story, he has been transformed and changed. And at the end of the story, he is a new creation. He is totally different. He's a happy person. He loves Christmas. He loves people. He's been dramatically changed. I would say he has been supernaturally changed the way he's portrayed in the story. He's a totally new person. And what changed him from being evil to good was just having an experience. Actually, it wasn't even on the supernatural level, really. And my question is, is that really what changes people? I mean, it brings about real change that turns a sinner into a saint. Not according to the Bible. There's, o- there's only one way to really change a human being. Only one way, and it's a supernatural interaction and experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one that can change the sinful soul. But ever since A Christmas Carol and even many movies and books and stories and Disney stories ever since then, this is a very common thing, where at the beginning of the story, somebody is evil, uh, angry, dangerous, they hate people, they hate life, they have an experience or some kind of natural interaction, and by the end of the story, they have been transformed and changed. And you can see it in movie after movie, that's just the very common storyline. And the message is simply that you just need an experience to change you of some sort. Um, I I mean, even a a movie called Regarding Henry, I think it was with Harrison 40 years ago, he was was unfaithful to his wife. He was a jerk. He was mean. He was self-centered. He got a bullet to the head. He recovered, and he became a new person. Totally changed. Wonderful husband. Happy guy. And there was a transformation that took place. So moral of the story, if you want to change somebody that's a curmudgeon, just shoot him in the head with a bullet, and they will change. Um... All the way to Disney movies, even uh, Beauty and the Beast. At the beginning of the movie, uh, the Beast is a beast, and he's angry. And he has some experiences, and he interacts with a sweet girl, and by the end of the story, he has been changed and totally transformed, and he is a new person or new creation. And that is fiction. That's a fairy tale. It's unreality, and so we, I mean, it's not reality, so we need to be reminded of that because we see that theme and that storyline so often all the time. That if you want somebody to change, all you need is some natural experience or interaction or encounter. I think the most dramatic for me was when in the 70s, and I think I was a junior higher, and a TV show came out, and it was a special on the news, and it was called Scared Straight. And the idea was all these vicious prisoners in a correctional facility who committed rape and murder and everything else and confined there for life and even on death row and these were the worst of the worst of criminals, 
and they would bring in uh, a bunch of wayward teenagers, mostly teenage boys, who were on the wrong path, and it was obvious that the trajectory didn't look good for their life. They were going to end up with a messed up life or dead prematurely. And so somebody thought, oh, we need to change these young people before it's too late. So how do we change people and transform them and make them new? Well, let's scare them straight. So they'd bring in uh, these teenagers into the correctional facility, put them in a classroom, and then these convicted, experienced, evil murderers and cons would talk to these teenagers and yell at them and scream at them and threaten them and cuss at them and warn them, if you continue on the path that you are on, you will end up like me, an incarcerated criminal headed for death row. So you need to change and you need to change now. And they would try to scare these teenagers into right behavior. And that's why it was called scared straight. And there, at times there was change. But the kind of change it was, it was simply on the surface. It was behavioral change. It was natural change, not supernatural change. And I guarantee it wasn't long-term eternal change. Because there's only one thing that can change a sinner into a saint. And it's a personal experience and interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed through the gospel and scripture. And that's what this story is about. So long before there was a Christmas carol that said there could be change through these supernatural, I mean, through these natural human means, there's the story that is true historically in the Bible where Jesus shows and displays how true change can happen for any human person, regardless of how horrible and bad they are. So before we look at the story, I want to ask you a question. And think of the most horrific, horrible, evil person that you can think of or know that's alive today, and don't say their name out loud, especially if they're sitting next to you. Think of that is not a Christian, that is just downright evil, and the kind of person that you think that there is no way this person could be saved. Sometimes we think about that. Uh, Maybe it's a character you don't know personally, but it's maybe some evil dictator or whatever. It's the, the head of ISIS or... What is the most evil person you think of? And sometimes you even entertain the thought that there is no way this person could be saved. You know, sometimes we think that way. We think of a person, there is no way. I know God is good. I know God is gracious. I know God does miracles. I know God is sovereign. There is no way this person could be saved. Maybe it was a relative you had to interact with over the holidays. That happens. Well, if you can actually think of somebody like that, that's... Um, I want to counter that thought with this real-life story today with a man named Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus was one bad man. He was deplorable. He was evil. He was incarnate selfishness. That's clear from Scripture, and that's in Luke 19. But before we get to Luke 19, here's the backdrop from Luke. Here's the contrast that is deliberate the way he wrote his gospel. In Luke 18, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry, by the way. He's about to go to the cross. He's been preaching and teaching for three-plus years. He knows he's going to the cross. As a matter of fact, he told his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem, and I am going to die. Follow me. That's where he's headed. He's going to Jerusalem, probably from the area of Galilee, where he did his last ministry there. And while he's on the road and heading towards Jerusalem, he's going to intersect, intersect with the city of Jericho, which is on the road to Jerusalem. But before getting to Jericho, where he interacts with this very evil, self-centered Zacchaeus, in Luke 18, the chapter before, Luke uh, gives us two other incidents that happen. One is the famous uh, story of the Pharisee and the publican, a parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. I'll just read it to you, just a couple of verses. Verse 9, Jesus is telling, he's teaching publicly in the crowd, 
there are self-righteous Jews, most of whom are probably Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, who think they are the holiest of the holy. They look down their nose at other people, the common man, that God doesn't love as much as he loves them. And Luke 18, verse 9 says this, And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, probably the Pharisees, who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, forgiven by God, loved by God, appreciated by God, prized by God, God's gift to humanity. Jesus knows their heart. He knows their mind. He knows their thinking. He knows they're in the crowd, sprinkled around the masses that are pushing in on him. And he tells this very specific story parable to rebuke them, to expose them, to chastise them based on a true biblical reality. Well, what was the story? He begins the story this way, verse 10. Well, two men went up into the temple. To go to the temple in Jerusalem, you had to go up. You had to go uphill. And people, Jews, would come from all over, literally, the world at different times to go. If you were to be a faithful Jew and an obedient Jew and a good Jew, you would go, especially as a male, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem at different times to pray and to offer sacrifices. And so Jesus tells this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Okay, that makes sense. Pharisees were the holiest of the holy. They were the administrators of the religion of Israel and specifically Jerusalem and the temple. The Pharisees and the Sadducees pretty much ran the show at the temple and also managed and had authority over the synagogues where religion happened. The Pharisees, the pure ones. And so that makes sense. Yes, two men went up to pray at the temple. One was a Pharisee. And then this contrast. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The other a publican. Now, in the Jewish mind in Jesus' day in Israel, the worst kind of sinner, the most despicable outcast imaginable next to an open practicing harlot and prostitute was a tax collector, a publican. They were Jewish men, usually, working for Rome, the pagan country, collecting money and taxes from their own people, the Jews, and to take those taxes and give it back to Rome and to Caesar. So they were seen as two-faced betrayers of their own people. They were utterly despised. They were considered unclean. As a matter of fact, it was common practice that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes would not allow a Jewish tax collector or publican even come near a synagogue. They were unsynagogued. They weren't, they weren't allowed to. So they were ostracized, socially speaking. The only people that uh, tax collect, Jewish tax collectors could mingle with and hang out with would be fellow tax collectors and other deplorable sinners, the scum of the earth, like I said, prostitutes and the like. So just this idea that a publican would come to the temple to pray was a ghastly thought in the Jewish audience that Jesus was preaching to. And it was almost an absurd thought. What in the world would a publican be doing at the temple praying? That's ridiculous. Everybody knows God doesn't like publicans. They are dirty. They are filthy. They are hypocritical. They are selfish. And it was true that many of the publicans or tax collectors were very selfish. And they were only in the business for the money. Because they would, they were given the authority of the Roman government of Caesar himself to exact money 
from the people and tax them for everything imaginable and demand it with the sword if necessary. So they would take money from their own people, the taxes, and then they would pocket some of it and then give whatever they owed to Caesar. So many times these tax collectors, they were dishonest, they were greedy, they were extortioners. They would take more than was warranted, more than was allowed, more than was necessary, which was outright theft. They didn't care. They were getting rich. So it was a way to make a lot of money, being a tax collector. It was a racket. So here's Jesus' story. Two men went up to uh, the temple to pray, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Now, uh, the result of this story, and, and by the way, Jesus concludes the story by saying that the publican, the sinful guy, he got, justi- he got justified. He got saved. This man went home justified because he recognized during his prayer that he was a sinner and he asked God to save me. Counting his chest, he was convicted and God saved him that day. Now, that would have been a ridiculous story for the Pharisees who would have been listening to that. That is absurd. I can't believe Jesus is telling this story. Everybody knows that is not true. There is no salvation for a publican, for a traitor. They were probably absolutely, utterly disgusted with the story. They already hated Jesus' guts at that point. They've been trying to kill him for over two years. And this just made the problem worse. I thought it was heresy. So this story reveals that Pharisees believe that publicans, tax collectors, were unsavable. They were unsalvageable. They were the worst of all sinners. God couldn't save a tax collector because God wouldn't save a tax collector, was their thinking, and that was common thought in the day. And they ran the religion. So that probably trickled down to the masses of the Jewish people who thought the average Jewish person thought, yeah, they're the worst. There's no way that a a tax collector could be saved. Well, right after that story... Uh, there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. He's Jewish, and he asks, Jesus, how can I receive eternal life? And Jesus tells him, and Jesus knew he had a problem with money, materialism, wealth. It was an idol. And Jesus said, well, you need to sell everything you got. The rich young ruler refused to sell everything because he was in love with his things so much, and he walked away downcast and sad. Jesus loved that man, says the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus knew he walked away unsaved, unrepentant, unwilling to do what Jesus asked him to do. Because he was filthy rich and his God was his money. Now the conclusion to that story, that is not a parable. That is a real story. Jesus, Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler in the presence of his apostles and other disciples. And so they, they witness this rich, filthy rich young man come to Jesus, ask for eternal life, and walk away unsaved. And the conclusion of the story, Jesus says as a teaching lesson to his disciples... Uh, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Basically, on the surface, Jesus was saying it was almost virtually impossible for a rich person, or literally somebody who is in love with their wealth, to be saved and enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because their God was their money, and that's why earlier Jesus said you can't serve two masters, money and God. It's one or the other. And this is just highlighting that truth. Well, his disciples heard this. They were aghast. They were frustrated. They were confused. Jesus basically just declared publicly that rich people can't be saved. 
when they're thinking, wow, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the wealthiest among us, and they have the high road to heaven. And if you're saying that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and rich people like them can't be saved, there is no hope for us. And that's why, in frustration, the disciples asked Jesus on the spot, then who can be saved if rich people can't? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, the things that are impossible with people uh, are not impossible with God. Or the things that are impossible with people are impossible with God. All things are possible with God. So there is an answer. The only way that a rich person can be saved is through a miracle of God. So here's these two scenarios. That in the mind of the Pharisee from that parable, the worst sinner on planet Earth that could be saved was a tax collector. And then right after that, in the minds of the disciples, uh, the worst kind of sinner who can't be saved is a rich person. So what is the most unsavable human being or the most unsavable candidate on planet Earth to be saved, which would be a rich tax collector. And that's where we start in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, the major quintessential ideal candidate who could never be reached and saved by God. Because he was filthy rich and he loved his money and he was an absolute traitor to his own people, the Jews. He was the worst of the worst. Yet where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. Amen? And we're going to see that in this story. Absolutely amazing. So let's go ahead and look at the story. I broke it up into just three main points there as this naturally flows through from beginning to a climax of the story. And it is a true story. We'll look at the first four verses. And that is the candidate for salvation. And this man's name is just simply it's Zacchaeus. I put Zacchaeus the sinner. Because that's how he's clearly portrayed in the Gospels. Um, but that's not what his name means. Ironically, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus from the Hebrew, means pure, innocent, and even righteous one. So he's actually living in the very antithesis of the meaning of his name. Maybe he is Jewish, so maybe his Jewish parents were faithful. We don't know, and they believed in the Old Testament. So they named him as a little baby, Zacchaeus, uh, we trust that he will be pure and innocent before God and be righteous and love God. Well, he didn't live up to his name up to this point as a man because he wasn't pure and innocent. He was, like I said, a traitor and considered despicable by everyone that knew him. Let's go ahead and look at the first four verses. The candidate for salvation, Zacchaeus, the sinner. So Jesus is continuing in his ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem. It's the end of his life. He knows his fate before him that he would give himself as the lamb for sin. He's with his disciples, the 12 apostles. They're on the road. They've been walking. He's teaching publicly. And on the road to Jerusalem, uh, he stops by Jericho. He's passing through Jericho, and that's where it stops. Uh, He entered Jericho and was passing through. So he didn't plan on stopping in Jericho, uh, but he was just going through on the way to Jerusalem. So he wasn't going to spend much time there. Jericho. Uh, should those of you who know the Old Testament, this should be a familiar name and story. We we read about Jericho the first time in the Old Testament in the days of Moses, uh, where Moses led the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness, and they got to the Jordan River. Moses died, and Joshua took them the rest of the way. They they walked uh, across the Jordan River. Actually, God held back the Jordan River. Maybe 1.5 million, maybe more Jews crossed the Jordan River into what God called the Promised Land which was pagan Canaan at the time. So they entered into what would become the nation of Israel through the Jordan River, out of the wilderness. 
And one of the first places that they entered was the city of Jericho. But Jericho at the time was a pagan city. It was a walled city. It was a secured city. It was an evil city. It was a corrupt city. All kinds of idolatry. And so that, the Old Testament is very clear about that. And so God, that was the first place that needed to be secured as God was going to entrust the entire promised land to his people, the Jews. And so that's what they're confronted with first is this uh, very significant city. By the way, uh, Jericho was a significant city, and it has been, get this, for 3,400 years. It is considered probably the oldest known city on planet Earth today, Jericho. So this is no obscure town. There are people, there are almost 20,000 people who reside there today, this day. Uh, my wife and I were privileged to go there about five years ago to Israel, and we got to go through Jericho. It was amazing. And close to the Jordan River, uh, where they crossed, it's on a main thoroughfare where you go north and south as you're walking from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jericho. Uh, archaeological excavation sites there showing civilizations all throughout history that have lived there, resided there. It was always, almost always a, a walled city. One of the amazing things that we got to see from our tour guides was what looked like a huge, massive, fallen wall from the outside going down to the inside, just like the story described in Joshua. Absolutely amazing. But it is a true historical city. There's another evidence that the Bible is true. It doesn't talk about fictitious fairyland places. Jericho is a real place, the oldest known city to humanity. And a thriving city. And considered one of the most fertile cities in all of Israel. Israel itself is just lush and fertile. And that's why God called it a land flowing with milk and honey. And one of the high points and the greatest fertile places to grow things and to live is Jericho. It's the heart of it. Josephus, writing in the first century, referred to Jericho, which existed during his day, as the little paradise. He had been there. He had seen it. It was flourishing. The soil is rich. Things grow well there. They have all kinds of plants. It's also referred to in the Old Testament as uh, the city of the palm trees. So it had many trees, and it was lush, and it was beautiful, and it bustling with people and there was great enterprise and interaction and economics that were done because it was on a main thoroughfare and a road especially going toward jerusalem where many people would be coming and going as they made their way to jerusalem from up north and as a result it was a busy bustling city in the day of jesus himself and lush and the produce there that was amazing they were world renowned for some of the things that they sold so there's a lot of uh, interchange financially going on there and as a result Rome, strategically, if they were wise, they would have a key place to exact and collect taxes from the people because of all the buying and selling that was going on. And that is exactly what was going on in this story. It existed. So Jesus enters Jericho, and he was just passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And here's key in verse 2. He was the chief tax collector. Now, Luke refers to tax collectors many times throughout his gospel. He does, I think, more than any other gospel writer. And he does it to make a point that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, even the scum of the earth, which in Jesus' day would have been tax collectors. So for I think for the sixth time he refers to another tax collector. This time he mentions the tax collector. Only Zacchaeus and Levi ever mentioned by name as tax collectors, but usually just refers to some tax collector. That was their moniker by which they were known because they were just sinful, a tax collector. That was enough said. Kind of like a lawyer in our day. And the stigma that comes with that. So Zacchaeus 
is mentioned by name. He wasn't just any tax collector. He is the chief tax collector, the archi-tax collector, the main tax collector, literally the head honcho. He is in charge, the chief administrator. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, so it is a unique word and is reserved for Zacchaeus. He was the man. In other words, he was probably the most powerful tax collector in the entire nation of Israel at the time. And he had underlings who worked under him, for him, on his behalf. He was on the top of the pyramid. And so not only did Zacchaeus exact money from the people and do it illegitimately because he took too much money, he also had other tax collectors under him working for him on his behalf. And they had to get his permission to have their outfit to do their work. And they had to pay him a cut and give him a percentage. So he's got money coming from all sides and all sources. And he became filthy rich. And he did it illegitimately. With the full approval of the Roman government, the highest authority in the land at the time, that was Zacchaeus. He was Jewish. He was a traitor to his people. He knew being raised as a Jew in Israel, that what he was doing in terms of the stealing and the extortion and the manipulation was totally against what the Mosaic law told him to do or required of him to be an honest man, the chief tax collector. And he was rich. Many times we think of the tax collector as so inherently evil that being a tax collector was illegitimate from God's point of view, and that's not true. You could be a tax collector and be legitimate. It was a legitimate business. It's not something that is uh, categorically outlawed by the Old Testament law. You could be a tax collector. There were taxes collected in the Old Testament under the Mosaic system. So being a tax collector as a profession was legitimate. For those of you maybe pursuing uh, work in the IRS, maybe you work there now. You don't need to be embarrassed. I see you sulking down in your pew. You can sit back up uh, because you can be an honest person who works for the IRS and does your job Faithfully, I'm reminded of early on in John the Baptist's ministry where he's calling people to repentance. Many people came, and even tax collectors came to John. And they asked John, what do you require of us? And he didn't say, quit your job, you evil tax collector. He didn't say that. He said, take only what is fair. Take only what you are due. Take only what is legitimate before the eyes of God. That's what John the Baptist said. So it was a legitimate profession, but it was a profession routinely abused, and Zacchaeus was the main culprit in abusing this profession, and that's how he got his wealth. He was filthy rich. But no doubt, Jesus had been teaching and preaching for three and a half years, literally doing miracles, it says in the Gospels, all over the entire nation of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem and key cities like Nazareth and many cities in uh, Galilee. And so many times Jesus is going back and forth with his uh, apostles. And the longer he's ministering, the crowds are larger and larger that are following him. And he's on these main thoroughfares. So no doubt that Zacchaeus, after three and a half years, had heard about this so-called Messiah and Savior and healer and teacher that was creating waves all throughout Israel. Uh, Jericho is only 15 miles from Jerusalem headquarters, so it was a very close city. So no doubt Zacchaeus had heard of the reputation of Jesus. Maybe even heard some of the truths that this Jesus was preaching. Maybe even Zacchaeus had interacted with some of these publicans and tax collectors that Jesus had preached to and even had dinner with early on in the Gospel of Luke, early in his ministry. 
Jesus was known as being a friend to sinners and going and sitting in the homes of tax collectors, which a pure Jew would never do because they were considered dirty and unclean. The last thing you do as a religious Jew is go in the house of a filthy, despicable tax collector. Jesus was doing that from the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus had earned some kind of reputation in the mind of the key tax collector of Israel, Zacchaeus. And how timely, because it is now the time for Jesus to go to the cross. And one of his last assignments from God Almighty, as you're passing through Zacchaeus, uh, uh, Jericho, by the way, I want you to go see a specific man. That was the assignment given by God Almighty to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what he's going to do. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit of God is working on the heart of Zacchaeus in light of what he has heard about Jesus. Because verse 3 says Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was unable. So it's down that main thoroughfare, that main road. That's probably where his tax booth was strategically located, where he could easily access all the people and all the masses and all the pilgrims walking by. And there's this huge throng of people and these crowds literally pushing in on Jesus as he's trying to make his way through Jericho to Jerusalem, his ultimate destination. And so Zacchaeus sees the crowd and he hears, whoa, Jesus the Messiah is in town. He's passing through. Zacchaeus is fascinated. Verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, which implies that Jesus and Zacchaeus have never met before. They didn't know each other personally. Sounds like Zacchaeus has actually never seen Jesus because he's trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable to. Why? Because of the crowd. The the crowd was huge. Made Jesus totally unaccessible. There's just this big mob moving along hundreds of feet away. I'm never going to get to see Jesus. Not only was this huge crowd smothering Jesus, it says that, Jesus, uh, that Zacchaeus was small in stature. Short guy. Literally. short. Guy. So he couldn't see over the crowd anyway. But he would not be uh, dissuaded. So verse 4 says, so he ran on ahead. Now keep in mind, he is like uh, a, a super manager, a CEO. He's totally in charge. He's supposed to be dignified, and yet he throws away all dignity as he runs to the nearest tree that he can find in a strategic location, and he climbs up literally into a sycamore tree in order that he can see Jesus. That That is an odd sight. Could be he's the only one in a tree for all we know. But you just don't do that. Now, a sycamore tree, a mulberry tree, they had figs. They were all over Israel. They're all over Jericho. Perfect place they're growing. We know that they were there historically. There are some there even today. They were huge, massive, uh, stable trees. They also had very low, sturdy branches, so you could eat the perfect tree for climbing. And so that's what he does. He starts climbing up this tree and so that he can get a strategic sight of Jesus as he's coming through town. Now, that would obviously, I think, arrest the attention of many. Wait, that's Zacchaeus, the most famous feared guy in town. What in the world is he doing up in that tree? That's weird. Well, Zacchaeus, he didn't care. He had one thing in mind. He's going to see Jesus. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. So Zacchaeus, he was a smart guy. He knew, there's the road, there's Jesus, 
I'll cut him off at the inner pass right there. Boom, there's a tree. And that's what he did. Never met before. He just wanted to see what he looked like. That's what the text says. The candidate for salvation. The candidate, Zacchaeus has no idea that he is a candidate for salvation. He doesn't know that at this time. But God knew that. Jesus even knew that. And this was actually planned before the foundation of the world. That's what's so amazing. So point number two, the candidate for salvation, Zacchaeus, the worst despicable sinner there ever was, the catalyst for salvation, the one who brings salvation. Number two, that key phrase, Jesus came. Who is the catalyst for salvation? It is always Jesus. There can't be salvation, supernatural transformation apart from Jesus Christ. That's exactly what verses 5 through 7 say. So here's Zacchaeus. He's up in the sycamore tree. Jesus is plugging along, pushing through with this crowd along the main road, heading to Jerusalem. And when Jesus came to the place where the sycamore tree was, by the way, we know from the Gospels that Jesus never wasted his time. He never wasted a moment. He was always on task, always on duty, always had enough hours in the day. He knew he was on a divine mission. He was 100% obedient to the leading of the Spirit of God in his life as the Father directed him to do everything God wanted him to do every moment of his life for three and a half years in his public ministry. Absolutely amazing. His economy of time, unparalleled in the history of the world as the God-man. He never did anything extraneous, superfluous, or wasted time. Also, he was never in a hurry. He was always on task as he's being led by the Spirit of God as the Son of Man. And so even though he's only passing through Jericho, he knew there was a divine appointment to be made according to the plans of the Father. And that's verse 5. When Jesus came to the place where the sycamore tree was, and this odd little man up in that tree, the tax gatherer, Zacchaeus, Jesus looked up, eye contact. You can imagine, I'd just love to see that, what Zacchaeus was thinking. Well, I just wanted to see the guy. He's actually stopped in front of my tree, and now he's looking at me. And Jesus fixed his gaze upon Zacchaeus, and he said to him, literally, he commanded him. Keep in mind, Jesus and Zacchaeus have never met before. Well, what was the command? It was twofold. Zacchaeus, now that was a miracle. Now, if that was me, uh, I probably would have had a heart attack and fallen out of the tree, and therefore the next command that comes wouldn't have been necessary. Zacchaeus? You mean Jesus knew people by name at times? God the Father would reveal that to Jesus, who was incarnate God in the flesh, and at times, not always, Jesus would know something supernaturally that only God can know. And in this case, he knew Zacchaeus by name, never having met him. That is a miracle. Zacchaeus, so he gets his attention. And by the way, he needed to say Zacchaeus because there were a lot of people smothering around. He can't just give a command because then everybody would obey. Zacchaeus, hurry immediately. That's a command in in the verb, in the Greek text. And come down. Literally, get down here right now. In other words, no hesitation. Well, Zacchaeus obeyed. Zacchaeus, that is amazing. This is the first objective, tangible sign of the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit on Zacchaeus' heart, who knows how long it has been going on. This is immediate obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everybody always obeyed Jesus when he gave a command, even in the Gospels. We just saw the rich young ruler not obey Jesus' simple command. Sell all your possessions. 
What did the rich young ruler do? No. No. Turn around, walk away. Zacchaeus, the richest man in Jericho, come down now. And then this amazing statement. Keep in mind, there are crowds around him. There are, crowd, there are people who are traveling with Jesus. But then there are crowds of Jericho. The citizens of the town, all of whom, they know who Zacchaeus is. He's the most feared man in town. And if you're a Jew, he's the most sinful man in town. He's the most filthy, dirty, unclean man in town. And if you're a holy Jew, a respectable Jew, a religious Jew, the last thing in the world that you do is have anything to do on a personal, social level with Zacchaeus the sinner. And the last thing you would ever do is want to associate with him by going into his filthy home. So, Jesus being Jesus, Son of God, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Wow. That's the direct approach. Jesus did that often. He wasn't being presumptuous. Jesus is acting as the Son of God. He's acting as the Savior. He is seeking out sinners to save. He knows he has a candidate. He knows someone who is ripe. It's been appointed by God. And so he is on mission. He is on task. And Jesus knows exactly what the will of the Father is here. I am having dinner at your house today. I am to be your honored guest. And that would have been my second heart attack if I was Zacchaeus is because the most holy, righteous uh, rabbi in all of Israel is in, is, wants to come to my house. This is amazing. For today, I must stay at your house. Probably the most amazing, profound word in this entire 10 verses is that little word in verse 5, must. D-E-I. Day. It's a particle. What is a particle? A particle is like the smallest. It's not even a part of speech. It is so small and insignificant. But it's not insignificant. You would think that a preposition is the smallest part of speech. And even smaller than a preposition is a particle. And must is a particle. D-E-I. Nine times in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke uses this particle. It's the particle of divine necessity. It's amazing. And every time Luke uses it, it's Jesus is the one that's talking. I must do this. I must do this. I must do this. It's always prophetic. It's always the direct will of the Father. It is always authoritative in binding. 100% of the time, Jesus is the one that says it. 100% of the time when Jesus says, I must do this, it actually happens and is fulfilled. Listen to what this must is on par with in the rest of the Gospel of Luke just briefly. Other, the other eight times where Jesus said, I must, I must, I must. Starting in Luke 2.49, I must be about my father's business. He was talking to his parents, I must, when he was 12 years old. Do you not know that I must be, by divine appointment, by Almighty God himself, about my father's business? And then in chapter 4, verse 43, he's grown up now. And he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities as well. As the crowds were pulling on him and saying, you must stay here, stay here. No, I must go and do the Father's work. Then in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. This is where he's warning his disciples that he's leaving and he's going to die. And Peter says he's the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, we, we know who you are. We want you to stay here forever. And be with us forever and don't leave us and don't go anywhere. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, the Son of Man, me, the Son of Man must suffer many 
things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And right after that, it says the apostles had no idea what he was talking about. I must die. Then in Luke 13, 33, Jesus said, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. As he was telling his apostles, I'm on a mission. Luke 17, 25, the Son of Man will be in his day at the second coming, at the second coming. The day is coming when I will return again in glory at the second coming of Christ. But first, he must suffer and be rejected. See how inviolable these scenarios are? They are divine appointments of Almighty God planned in eternity past. Jesus can't deviate. He won't deviate. Out of obedience to the Father, Luke twenty two thirty seven. that which is written must be accomplished in me. It's written in the Word of God in the Old Testament. It must be fulfilled in the person of me, Isaiah 52, or 53, verse 12, that I must suffer and die. And then finally in Luke 24, 44, after his death and resurrection and talking to the disciples on the road as he's teaching them out of the Bible and his role and who he is as the Messiah. And he said, all things must be fulfilled. All things must be fulfilled. I still must ascend back to the Father and build my church. That's what he's talking about, the must. Probably the most significant, powerful word in this entire passage. Jesus is on a divine appointment from God himself. What a privilege for Zacchaeus. Planned in eternity past, God the Father commissioned Jesus, the Son of God, at some point before you die and rise again and leave earth, you must stop by Zacchaeus in Jericho and have a meal with that man. I must stay at your house. What what amazing grace. This is amazing grace. Zacchaeus didn't deserve to be graced by the presence of the sinless Son of God. He didn't earn it. This is the grace of God. This is Jesus seeking sinners. Scripture is clear. Romans chapter 3 says that no man seeks after God. In this litany of truisms taken from the Psalms, a theology of Psalms that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 3, no man seeks after God No one is good. No one is righteous. We are all born corrupt. We are all born separated from God. We don't seek God. We seek our own interests. We seek our own sin. We run from God. Every sinner born in this world runs from God naturally. That's what we do. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, real people, they disobeyed, they sinned, they felt guilt, they knew it, and the first thing they did is they tried to run and hide from God. And they ran and they hid in the bushes, and sinners have been running from God ever since. And that's why Scripture is clear. Paul says it is clear. Romans 3. No person seeks after their God, after God, of their own volition, of their own initiative. No one. So God has to seek after sinners. That's why Jesus came into the world. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that He created. God so loved sinners who were born into this world. How much did he love him? That he gave, that he gave, that he gave. He is a giving God. He took the initiative. He gave. It is a gift. It is free. It isn't deserved. It isn't earned. God so loved the world, the sinful world, that he gave his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lamb of God, to be the Savior of sinners who don't seek after God of their own volition. God seeks after them. And that was Jesus' divine mission. He came into this world 
to seek after sinners and find them out. And Zacchaeus is a classic example. Jesus sought Zacchaeus, the sinner. Well, Zacchaeus wasn't afraid of Jesus. He wasn't embarrassed. He obeyed. He submitted. That's evidence that the Spirit of God had been working on his heart. And so here's what he did. In absolute obedience, verse 6, Zacchaeus hurried and came down. So he got right out of that tree, and it says he received him. Received That means Zacchaeus said, okay, let me take you to my house. Let me take you to my mansion, probably. He was filthy rich. And he received him means he took him to his house. God has a great economy of words. He doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't tell us things we don't need to know. But what he does tell us is categorically clear. It is clear what happened here. Zacchaeus welcomed uh, Jesus into his home. Jesus went to his home. Jesus had a meal with Zacchaeus. Maybe some of Zacchaeus' sinful, wicked, evil, dirty friends. But I guarantee you, the agenda was Jesus' agenda. The topic of discussion was what Jesus wanted to talk about. He was the master. He was the Lord. He was in charge. He would not compromise. They would live according to his dictates. And Zacchaeus welcomed that. He received him. He welcomed him. He embraced him. He was thrilled. Wow, actually, somebody's finally going to come and get to see my cool mansion that I've built with all this dirty blood money. So he received him with gladly, with joy. And yet he doesn't even know totally who Jesus is yet. He just, at this point, he knows he's some kind of famous teacher who does amazing things, apparently. And he's very friendly, and he wants me to have him, at his, have him over to my house. So that's as much as he knows at this point. But Jesus goes to his house. That is key. Jesus gets personal. Jesus gets personal today through people, through the gospel, the message of the Bible and the gospel. Jesus is in heaven, but he gets personal through the truth of his word supernaturally. When the word of God comes to you and you learn about Jesus from Scripture in conjunction with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God takes the word of God and implants it into your mind and into your heart and you can actually have a personal encounter and intimacy with Jesus Christ just as intimate as Zacchaeus had, really, today. Because he's literally present through His Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word. This is still possible today. It happens all the time. And then now, point number three, the change. The huge change. Keep in mind, uh, Jesus has been at Zacchaeus' house for an entire day. It's gone now into the second day. He stayed overnight at Zacchaeus' house. Not only did he go to Zacchaeus' house, which was taboo, he had dinner at Zacchaeus' house and ate with him, which was even worse. And the worst of all, he stayed overnight in Zacchaeus' house. How do we know that? Well, that's what the verb literally implies starting at verse 8. Let's look at 8 through 10. So Jesus goes to the house. They interact. They have dinner. They're talking. It's probably the next day now, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stopped. Literally, he took a stand. So at some point, he interrupted the interactions between him and Jesus. And he got very deliberate and very personal. Uh, Personal and deliberate. Because he wanted to say something. All the interaction that had been going on for an entire, almost 24-hour period, there had been a lot of conversation. And Zacchaeus finally came to see, literally, who Jesus was. He heard the man speak. He was unparalleled. He spoke with authority. He spoke with grace. He called for repentance. He talked about who he was. He offered salvation. No doubt, these are all the things that Jesus talked about because that's why he came. 
And hour after hour after hour, the Spirit of God is working on the heart and the conscience of Zacchaeus. And he is softened and he is wooed. And he begins to develop an affection for Jesus, who is like no other. That's what happened. We know this same thing happened with the thief on the cross. Jesus is executed with two criminals, one on the right and one on the left. They are mocking Jesus at the beginning of the resurrection. Mocking Him. Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours. As did the two criminals. The same gospel, Luke tells us, at the end, towards the end of the crucifixion, after six hours when Jesus was about to die, there had been a total transformation of one of these uh, robbers who had been mocking Jesus. He had heard Jesus and watched Jesus for six hours hanging there on the cross. He heard Jesus say just a few things that absolutely blew him away and changed his heart and changed his life for all eternity where he got to a point of conviction and repentance where he recognized Jesus for who he really was. He is not a criminal. He is without sin. He is without fault. He's not just a man. He is the Savior. And so that criminal cried out to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When I come into your kingdom and Jesus told him this, that truly, truly, I say to you, criminal who deserves to die. Truly, truly, I say to you, this day, today, crucifixion Friday, you will be with me in paradise. That's heaven. When that criminal breathed his last, he was instantaneously catapulted supernaturally into the presence of God the Father for all eternity totally forgiven of all of his sins, and it wasn't by his own works. It was by faith in Jesus Christ and his work. That's exactly what happens to Zacchaeus. All these hours of interacting with the gracious Son of God, he comes to realize who Jesus truly is. He is convicted. He falls in love with the Savior, and he has a heart transformation. He becomes a new person, literally a new creature. And the evidence of this are by the works that flow from his life shown by the words that come out of his mouth. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And listen to what Zacchaeus says. We know he's a new creature. Zacchaeus stopped. He stood. He took a stand. He was deliberate. And he said to the Lord, Luke doesn't use the word Lord haphazardly. Lord means Lord. Master, It's the Old Testament Yahweh. It is God himself. And here's what Zacchaeus said. Remember when he first, I want to see who this Jesus guy is. In verse 8, there's been a change. Zacchaeus says, behold, Lord, you're never going to believe this. Behold, Lord, he calls him Lord. He has come to know who Jesus truly is. He is the Lord and the only Lord, the only Savior. Jesus means God saves. Not only that, he is the Lord. And he says, Lord, by calling him Lord, Zacchaeus was saying, I bow the knee to you, Lord. You are my master. I submit to you. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will do whatever God wants me to do. I will do whatever the word of God wants me to do. I will do what is right. I surrender. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. This is a 180 from where he was a day before. He made a business of taking half possessions that belong to other people. This is what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. Jesus didn't ask him to do this. This is on his own initiative. This is the result of a broken and contrite changed heart at a supernatural divine level. 
I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... So he, he had been. He was, a, he was a, a thief. And he made a living doing it and he got rich doing it. And he knew that he's convicted. He is confessing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, and since I have defrauded so many people, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to give it back. And I'm not just going to give back what I took. I'm going to give back fourfold. What was that? That came right out of the Old Testament. That's Exodus 22 and Numbers chapter 5. So he was raised a Jew. He was raised in the synagogue. He does know the Word of God. He knows what is required of him as a Jew. And God has changed his heart, and now he's willing to obey. Down to the last detail. If I stole, I'm not just going to give what is required of me a time. I'm going to give the maximum of what I stole. Four times in return for those people that I ripped off. He's a new man. If I have defrauded anyone, I'm going to give back four times as much. This reminds me of the words of Paul in Ephesians 4. Those who steal, steal more. Stop being a thief. Work hard. Make your own money. And don't just make money for yourself. When you make money, give it to other people. Share it. That's exactly that, that's the evidence of a changed heart. That is exactly what Zacchaeus is doing. That's what he's come to. He is now a new creature. Salvation has happened in the heart of Zacchaeus. Jesus formally acknowledges that at the end of the story. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, this is awesome, today, today, this day. In other words, the day before, Zacchaeus was lost. He was a sheep totally out in the weeds, untransformed heart. And Jesus says today, salvation, salvation, that's spiritual salvation, a changed heart, forgiven sin, eternal life, born in the family of God, transferred from the kingdom of the devil into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's what that means, salvation, regeneration, true repentance, And it's on the inside. Today, salvation has come to this house. He made a declaration. There were probably people there. Today, Zacchaeus has been truly saved. Take note, people. And it didn't happen. Zacchaeus didn't get saved by his good works. Zacchaeus didn't get saved by giving to the poor. Zacchaeus was saved before he decided to give to the poor. You can't get saved by doing good deeds. Jesus did the good deed on the cross of dying on behalf of sinners. That's the only thing that can save you. It's His works, not our works. It's by grace through faith in Jesus' works that we can get saved. That's what Zacchaeus understood. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one that can deal with my guilt. And He did, and Jesus declares salvation. Salvation has truly come to this house because He too, this Zacchaeus, this Jew, born ethnically a Jew, but didn't live like a true Jew, a person beloved by God. Most of his life, he lived a deplorable life in disobedience to God, the God of the Jews. But now he's become a true Jew, an obedient Jew, a select and elected one, a saved one by Almighty God. So he's living up to his name now, Jew, the people of God, by virtue of his spiritual transformation. And that's why Jesus makes this declaration that Zacchaeus too now, he is a son of Abraham. Abraham was the first Jew, the first Jew who loved God, knew God, repented, had faith in God, that Jesus, or that God changed. And all the Jews came ethnically through the loins of Abraham. But only those who believed in God by grace through faith were the ones that were legitimate, true Jews from the inside. And that's what Zacchaeus had come, a fulfilled Jew. And then verse 10, after this amazing story, and then this statement where Jesus summarizes it perfectly, saying why he came. 
He didn't come just to do miracles and heal people and be a do-gooder and a social worker and be an example and a model and all these other things that people confuse the story of who Jesus is and why he came. Not just a prophet, not just a great teacher. Very specific why he came. Only a few times Jesus did this where he said out of his own mouth why he came. And it's always the same. This is one version, Luke 19.10. This is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For the Son of Man... Jesus takes this term, Son of Man, which comes out of the book of Daniel, which was a very specific prophetic term of the coming Messiah. Um, This was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Many times he's called the Son of God. But he called himself the Son of Man. And it's a balanced term because it refers to his humanity and his deity at the same time. The, The distinct Son of Man, the unique Son of Man, uh, the one that came from Almighty God in a human body. There is no substitute. There is no uh, anybody else who can accomplish what He did. The Son of Man, the saving Son of Man. It's a, synonymous with Messiah and Savior. For the Son of Man came in fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, has come into this world for the sole purpose or specific purpose to seek and to save those who are lost. And that is exactly what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. The worst sinner on planet earth and where sin abounds grace abounds all the more with the gospel of jesus christ mission accomplished well jesus is still seeking sinners today by the way at the end of verse 10 your english version says jesus came to seek to go after to hound to pursue those of you who've been saved god was hounding you he was pursuing you maybe you were running i was running all through high school couldn't outrun god Seeking and to save, to rescue spiritually from sin, from the devil, from the world, from death, from hell, from themselves. To seek and to save that which was lost. By the way, the word for lost here is related to the Greek word. It's a cognitive word for destruction. Jesus came to seek and save sinners from eternal destruction. That they might be saved and adopted and brought into his spiritual family forever. Amazing, amazing grace. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned Romans 3, where Paul said that no man seeks after God. But there are times where we see people seek after God or come after God. Because to get saved, you actually have to take an initiative somehow. You have to believe You have to exercise human volition. You have to exercise your will. God doesn't save you against your will. And there are times where we see, it looks like people came after Jesus, coming to Jesus, seeking Jesus. How is that possible? I thought the Bible said no one seeks Jesus. I know that when I got saved at that time, I was seeking after Jesus, some of you might say. I wanted the truth. I was hungry for truth. I wanted a Savior. I wanted to be saved. I sought Jesus. Well, that's also taught in the Bible. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, he said, no one can come to me, no one seeks me on their own initiative, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless... So there is a condition under which humans will seek after God and seek after Jesus and, and the truth. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that's the beautiful balance. Our gracious God works on the hearts of sinners invisibly, through the truth of His Word out of Scripture, through the glorious Gospel 
in the Bible and through His amazing Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit continues to work on sinners from the time they are born, working on their heart, their mind, their conscience, softening them, trying to enlighten them, trying to take the Word of God and penetrate it into their soul so that they will be able to see the truth despite sinful blindness and satanic blindness. So that they'll come to a point because of the work of the Father and the drawing and the wooing of the Father that they actually might come to Jesus the Savior and bow the knee like Zacchaeus did and calls Jesus Lord. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal salvation forever. Spiritual and even physical. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.